It's a big welcome from me, Chris Bowers, to an ATP podcast special focusing on one of the most remarkable figures in today's broad tennis world. During the recent Wimbledon Championships, I was fortunate to sit down for an extended chat with one of the great entertainers in the game, Mansour Bahrami. Between age 5 to 13, I have played with a dustman, with a piece of wood. One of them, he grabbed me and he took me above his head. And he smashed me on the, on the floor, on the cement, once, twice, three times. There were so many nights I had nowhere to sleep. I was sleeping in the, I mean, in, in the daytime, three, four hours, just to have some energy to be able to walk all the night in the streets of Paris. Novak came to me and he says, Mansur, I look at your videos and I love watching that. It's fantastic. As you'll hear over the next half hour, we covered a lot of ground from growing up in Iran as the revolution approached to being homeless in Paris, the origin of his unique style of play and how Novak Djokovic is one of his biggest fans. It's a remarkable story. So pour yourself a glass of your favourite drink, sit back, relax and enjoy. I'm delighted to be talking to Mansour Bahrami, one of the most popular guys on the tennis circuit. Are you comfortable with the fact that you are known more as a trick shot and entertaining player than you are as a, an ex-player? Well, I don't mind. You see, uh, Chris, I'm playing tennis and I love playing tennis and this is my passion. And I, when I go to the court and I, I try some uh, shots that is, becomes out of ordinary and people like it and... and that's how I have learned to, to, to play tennis. Yeah, I don't mind they call me trick shot and everything. But, uh, you know, the thing is, uh, when you never had a tennis lesson in your life, when you never had a tennis coach, when you play for eight years of your early years, when all of us tennis players, the, the, the roots and the, 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 the main thing that we learn, that it stays with us uh, for all our life, it's between age 5, 6 to 12, 13. So between age 5 to 13, I have played with a dustman, with a piece of wood. And no one uh, asked me, told me, you know, you have to stop this nonsense and play uh, uh, serious tennis. And for me, it was a game, you know, it was just a game with my friends who, which, with whom I was playing they were exactly in the same situation as I was, we could uh, make a court, a net of ourselves and then make the lines and go and, 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 and just have fun and play. So was there no tennis court in Iran when you were growing up? In, in the 1960s, when I was four, five years old, four years old, we had one big sport complex that we had every sport in it. My father was a gardener there. And when I started walking, I was, I don't know, two, three years old. I could go to any sport. It was no problem. And there we had 13 courts. And that was it. There was no other courts. Later on, in the 1970s, beginning 70s, we had some of the most beautiful clubs in the world. And the Shah of Iran, he likes the sport. He was helping and developing everything. The sport was becoming big. And then the revolution happened. And then everything stopped. 
So if you hadn't had your dad working as a gardener at the sports complex, would you have known about tennis? No, I guess no, never. I would have known, known nothing about tennis. Is if my father was not a, a gardener in this sport complex where we used to live in this place, uh, I wouldn't, uh, I would never maybe saw a tennis court, maybe seen a tennis court. So when you were playing with pans and brushes and, and improvised nets, was that trying to emulate what you were seeing at the sports complex? Absolutely, absolutely, because. I couldn't go to the tennis court to play. They told me every time I went to the tennis court, I had somebody kick my my butt, and I, they told me get the hell out of here. And sometimes because you were too young, or because you weren't because, a member, or what? Because I was not uh, allowed to go to the tennis courts because the tennis courts were uh, reserved for the elite. And my father, I never asked my father to buy me a racket because uh, buy a racket. For my, from my, for my, uh, from my father, by my father, would be like a two months' salary. So I never asked him to buy me a racket. He would never be able to afford it. So uh, the fact that they said you're not allowed to come, I said okay. I want to show you guys. This is what I want to do. So I came, I came back, and I came back. And sometimes they really hit me. Violently, that like one day I thought I'm going to die. Who did? One of the guards there. I was 12 years old, uh, and uh, my idol, uh, my hero, Iranian hero, hero. His name was Shirzad Akbari. I was ball boying for him. He told me, Mansoor, if you ball boying good today, I'm going to give you a, a nice gift. I was 12 years old. So he gave me, at the end of the day, he gave me a racket. I was so happy. That was my first racket. And with this racket, I couldn't sleep the whole night. I, until the day after, the temptation was so big. A friend of mine who was allowed to play, he said, Masu, let's go try your racket. It was a uh, hot summer day of August. It was like 40 degrees. And these 13 courts were all empty. 1 p.m. we went to the court. We played for one minute. And after one minute, I saw uh, myself surrounded by the guards. So I said, okay, this guy is going to tell me, Mansur, get the hell hell out of here. I would leave. But one of them, he grabbed me and he took me above his head. And he smashed me on the, on the floor, on the cement, once, twice, three times, five times, seven times. I thought, I'm going to die today. I was bleeding all over my face. I couldn't move anymore. I saw the guy. He went to, our, to my racket. I begged him. I said, please, don't touch my racket. He took my racket. He put it on the, on the stair. And he smashed it in two. That was, that was the first memory of my first racket, which lasted not even 24 hours. You're 12. I'm 12 years old. The guy was 40 years old. And, and I, even today, I don't understand his action. Why? What could have made him do such a thing to a 12-year-old kid? It's just not fair, you know? And so, uh, had you had any lessons up to that point? 
I have never had a tennis lesson in my life. So how did you know how to play? As I said, I was, uh, when I was five, they told me, Mansur, you're not allowed to come here, okay? But if you want to ball boy, you can come here as a ball boy. So I was ball boying for the rich people, getting 10 cents per hour ball boying. And all I was doing, was I was watching people. I was listening to the, 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 the coaches when they were uh, giving lessons. What is the, he's saying to them? I was trying to do the same thing with a piece of wood out of the tennis courts. My best place was to, to hit was the, the football, the football uh, locker room. The footballers, they had their locker room there. I would go against the wall there and hit in, uh, against the wall for hours and hours. And again, end of the, 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 the summer, when the, we had three big swimming pools there, then the swimming pools were empty. I would go in the bottom of the, the, the swimming pool. There was no bad bounces, and that would be the best place for me to, to practice. So when did you first get a sense that you were actually good enough to play internationally? When I was 13 years old, the Federation, our Federation, Iranian Federation, they needed new players. So we didn't have a, a program that, like you have here in France or in, in England and to bring up the players. We didn't have that. All the tennis players, Iranian tennis players of my time and the, the generation before me were all ball boys who become, became tennis players. So at 13, they knew uh, I had certain talents. So they came to me and they said, Mansoor, here is two rackets. From now on, you can play on the courts and you are priority. Uh, you can play as much as you want, as long as you want, with whomever you want. And then I start playing. And once I had this racket in my hand, everything was really so easy. And I played uh, for three years. After When I was 16, I was a member of the Davis Cup team. At 17, I had... A uh, gentleman who I was on the phone right now, he's in New York, he's 80 years old. He helped me to go out and play the, 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 you know, the ATP tour, qualifying and everything. And I started playing, I was playing pretty good. I was, my ranking was getting top two, near to top 200. And, uh, and then the revolution happened and I had to stop. So tell me, the... Shah was overthrown in 1979. The Islamic regime took over. Were you already travelling internationally at that point? Before that, yes. But then uh, I, from 78, 79, 80, I didn't play. I was in Iran. I was a stock. I was, didn't know where we were going. My parents, everyone was worried. I see hundreds of thousands of people in the streets and shouting the, the, to, to the Shah to leave. And... Uh, it was we, we were uncertain. We didn't know what's going on, and tennis was stopped already because all the people who could play tennis they had already left. We had one of the biggest ATP tournament in Iran in 1977. That was the last time we we organized it in 1977. If my memory is good, I think it was a hundred and fifty thousand dollars tournament. It was at that time. I think it was only Rome and Paris. Tehran was paying that price, that kind of prize money. Most of the prize monies were like 50,000, 75, and few hundreds. And uh, so in 78, just 10 days before the tournament, it was in October, 
they said it's cancelled because it was so dangerous to, to organize it. So and then after that there was no more tennis. We stopped playing tennis and then when the, the Ayatollahs took uh, power, they, they, they said officially no tennis is American capitalist game we don't want. So it was just horrible for me. Okay, but that means you must have been at home when the revolution happened or could you have stayed abroad at one of the tournaments and and therefore avoided being grounded back home in Tehran? I could have if I had uh, somebody, some, somebody help me. And uh, I was 21 year old, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, if, if somebody would say, OK, Mansour, you should not go back. You have to stay, you have to play. And in the same time, I had my parents. My father was already 80 years old, you know, and, and I couldn't just, you know, to leave your country for good. You don't leave with a, a light heart, with, a, uh, with joy. For me, leaving my, my country was heartbreaking. To leave my family behind, to leave my country behind and come and live elsewhere, it wasn't easy. So uh, I, I had to go. I couldn't just say, okay, I'm going to uh, just leave my family and, and, and leave. And uh, when I came to France, for a long time, I was homeless. I was illegal. I couldn't, uh, I, as, soon, as soon as I see a police uh, coming towards me, I would have changed my direction not to uh, see him. Because if he says, where are your papers? I want to see your visa or... I didn't have, so I had to hide. And the, the authorities over there, they told me, you have to leave the country, you cannot stay here. Or if you want, you can ask for asylum, political refugee. And in this case, you can travel, you can go play your tennis, uh, you can work here, but you can never go back to Iran. That would have been the best thing if I was alone in the world, if I had no family. But for me, would have, in my mind, was so selfish to accept that because accepting that, that means I would maybe never see my father again, my mother again, because I could never go back to Iran. And I'm very happy I didn't do it because the day I left Iran, 8th of August 1980, exactly day per day, three years later, I went back and I saw my dad three days before he died. And he said, Mansur, I've been waiting long time for this moment. And that's why I didn't want to be a, a, a political uh, asylum. So you went to Paris in 1980, but in that position where you could still travel back to Iran. How, how did you manage to survive in Paris in those three years? It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because, uh, as I said, I was uh, homeless. I was uh, illegal. Uh, the police didn't give me uh, extend my visa, and they were asking me, "You have to leave the country. You cannot stay here." There were so many nights I had nowhere to sleep. I was uh, sleeping in the I mean, in in the daytime, three four hours, just to have some energy to be able to walk all the night in the streets of Paris. And that was in Roland Garros. There was this lady who was uh, the, the, the guardian of Roland Garros. Her name was Colette Amelin. Uh, she was a fantastic lady. And she would sometimes give me some food and just let me sleep there, you know, and, and bring me some drinks. And I was there every day 
with Philippe Chatrier, who was the president of the Federation, trying to, you know, help me get my visas sorted and everything. And that was not easy. It wasn't easy. And, and uh, uh, that I stayed in France for the six years to come. I played only in France. Like three years and a half, I didn't play. And then I came to France. I played for six years in France. Basically, from age 20 to 30, I didn't play professional tennis. Everything I did was after the age of 30, you know. And then because with Iranian passport, we couldn't go, go anywhere. My passport was the best passport in the world you could, could have. I could go anywhere without visas. I was coming to England, to France, to Germany. Before 79? Before, before, before 79. And all of a sudden, from one day to the others, no one would allow me to go anywhere. Even today, it's the same thing. So nothing's changed. And, uh, and that was, for me, it was... Uh, my career could be different if I could play, but uh, I quite couldn't. And as the 80s moved on, you actually did establish yourself on the tennis tour, initially as a singles player, but mostly as a doubles player peaking at the French in 89, where you got to the doubles final with uh, Vinogradsky. Yes, that's true. I, as I said, I, when I started to play, to go out of France was in 1986. I was already 30 years old. And start, you know, starting all over from being ranked nothing, you know, you have to go qualifying everywhere, you know. But the six years in France, I played mainly in the small tournaments in France. I was the man to beat in, in the French tournaments. I was some kind of federer of, of France, you know. To, and, and, uh, but I, I, the only tournaments I could play was three, four tournaments ATP that we had at that time in France. And Roland Garros? And Roland Garros, yeah. And in Roland Garros in 1981, I, Jacques Dorfman, I was ranked He's the, He was the referee? He was the referee. He died, passed away five, four, five six years ago. Uh, I hope he's in peace. And uh, he said, Mansur, I give you a wild card for your um, f- for pre-qualifying. Okay? And th- I was, this time I was illegal. I, I was playing. Every time I played in the court, I was afraid that police come and say, okay, this guy has no his paper, we put you in the same first flight and you go home. And so he, he gave me this wild card and I won the three runs in the pre-qualifying and then three runs in the qualifying. And then I first run, I beat Jean-Louis Yaye. He was number four in France. I beat him in straight set. And then we were in war against Iraq. And the journalists, they asked me to come to the press conference. And they said, who are you? What are you doing? Iran is war. Who? I said, well, I'm an Iranian player. I am homeless. I'm uh, uh, illegal. I, I, all I want, I just want to play tennis here. And they really helped me, helped me to get my, my papers sorted. They wrote, and I talked to radio, to television, to the uh, new, newspapers. They said, this is disgusting. This is the uh, uh, country of human rights. We sometimes bring... The, 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 the criminals, the, the dictators here, we gave them safety, security. This guy, he just wants to play tennis, they don't. So with all the papers and the TV and the radio, uh, I, after the tournament, I went to see the same guy at the police that he was telling me, you have 24 hours to go, leave the country, or ask for asylum. This was the two choices I had. 
I didn't want no of them. And uh, so I went there and I that was my last uh, chance. I said, okay, what do you do with this? They gave me my carte de séjour, they call it, the, the, you know, the residence resident, permit. Residence permit for one year. So from there on, my life became easier. At least I didn't have to hide from the police. And that which was very, very, I started playing easier. And, and, uh, and what year did you get your residence permit? In 1986, gave, they gave me resident permit for 10 years. And once you have the resident permit for 10 years, and I was already married, I had a child. With that, you still have to get visas. But when you show that, when you show, show that permit and 10 years, and you say you have, we are married, your kid is there, your wife is there, the countries, some countries, they, would, they give you visas easier. For example, I, to tell you how difficult it was for me, you work for ATP. Yeah. You know Weller Evans. Yes. In 1984, I played the pre-qualifying of uh, Open de Lorraine in Metz. You remember tournament? Yes, I remember that one. Pre-qualify, I, I won. I went to the qualify, I won. I came to the semi-final, okay? And Weller Evans said to me, Mansur, next week... I mean, after tomorrow, the tournament in Brussels, it was a $600,000 tournament, uh, starts and your special exam. Do you want that? I said, of course I want that. that, that those uh, two, three times I lost occasion, opportunities like that because I couldn't travel with my passport. So I said, please help me with ATP. I don't know, with ITF, with... Uh, to get my visa, you know. And they, he said, okay, we're going to call. They called the, 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 the embassy of, of, of uh, Belgium. Belgian embassy, Belgian in, embassy Bra- in Paris. Belgian yeah. embassy. And, you know, to get my visa sorted. They said, we need two, three months to give you the answer. But I had to pay the day after I had to be there. So the things like this, were, they, they stopped my career. So. Did you feel that you had support from the tennis community? You've talked about that lovely woman at Roland Garros, but was the tennis community supportive? I mean, these days, somebody in your situation, the ATP would, you know, would look to see what they could do to help. Was there support at the time? Not really. No, no. I wish there was. I wish uh, if I was the same man and 24 years today... 24 years old and the same situation, I'm sure the ITF and the ATP probably have helped me more. But at that time, there was no. I remember one day I was completely uh, homeless and, and, and illegal. I was, as I told you, I was uh, sleeping on the bench in front of this guardian's uh, uh, office in Roland Garros. And I saw Guillermo Villas and uh, Nasty, Nastasi were practicing. I didn't want to bother them. So I waited uh, until they finished. And then they finished and they come close to me, like uh, 10 yards from me. And I got up and I say, hey, Nasty. And Nastasi goes, hey, Mansour. Jesus, what are you doing here? I thought you were dead in the dev- revolution. I thought they hung you up or something. I'm so happy to see you. What, when did you arrive? What can I do for you? You know, if just saying what can I do for you, you know, he says, I can help you. If you need me, uh, you know, tell me anything. I can. I know people. I didn't know where I'm going to uh, sleep. I had nothing to eat. I told him, I said, Nasty, 
I was really happy that he offered to help. I said, Nasty, and I never forget that. I said, Nasty, thank you very much. Uh, everything is good. All is fine. I'm here and nothing was good. But I told him I'm okay because I had to find my way. I, I don't think it was... Uh, uh, a solution to go stay with him one week or ten days. You know, I cannot live forever with him. Ten days here, okay. One, one day there. One. No, I had to find my way. So I said everything is okay, and I left. I remember a match you played against Becker. I think it yes. was Miami quarterfinal. No, no, it no? was it was in in Hamburg. But it was very entertaining. And I wonder whether at that point you were starting to develop a reputation as being the entertainer on the Not tour. At all. Not at all. I played like that uh, always. I've played... I must tell you one thing, Chris, that no one in the world of tennis can say. I was paid guarantees to go play qualifying in every tournament I was playing. They paid me guarantees to come play qualifying because I was 32, 33 years old they were asking me, Mansu, we want you to come and play because I was bringing the crowd the people were coming to watch my tennis and, and, and I since I was 10 years old, all I wanted to do was just to please the crowd when I was 10 years old hitting with the dustpan against the wall, people would stop there and go, wow, how do you do it? I would hit the ball between my legs, smash with the net behind, behind me with the dustpan, with a, with, a, with a piece of wood. And I was not the only one. There were other tennis players, Iranian, they were doing the same thing. I didn't play tennis to become rich because there was no money. You're maybe um, definitely younger than me, but you know those days there was no money in tennis. You right. would win, you would win a cup, or they would give you two rackets or or, or, or warm up. A voucher. Uh, yeah, a voucher for fifty dollars, or that's it. And so, I didn't play to become rich. I didn't play to. I played because it was a game. And uh, when I played uh, Boris Becker, I know that Boris Becker was very very nervous because he had seen me play and I just joked too much, you know, and I, I just wanted to have pleasure on the court. And the German people, they were after every point was like a standing ovation. And they, they uh, I remember, for example, I played Michael Stich once in, again in Germany. I played against Michael Stich and, and at once he stopped the, 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 the match and he said to the people, who is German here? Is it me or is him? I mean, we, we, we are not in Iran. You know, and, and this was... I played Davis Cup against Heinz Gunterhardt in Geneva. And every point I was winning, people were standing like this. And every time he was winning the point, people were booing him. And this was in Geneva. And the same thing. I, I, I didn't start anything. I was, this was the way I always played. So when did you get the sense that you could make a, not make a living, that's the wrong phrase, but that you could make something of, make a career of the, the entertaining, the trick shots? The, when when, when uh, people start paying me to come and play the qualifying, I knew what, why they were paying me to come and play. Here in Wimbledon, you have all these legends playing. I haven't done anything. I played, okay, I played uh, final of French Open, but uh, I'm playing, uh, I played uh, exhibitions with Rod Laver, with Roswell, with Emerson, uh, John Newcomb, Tony Roach. Uh, 
I don't know, Nastasi, Santana, and Vilas, Borg, McEnroe, Connors. I've, I'm proud of that because I was with all these legends, past number ones, Grand Slam winners, and, and I have never been that. But I know that when Wimbledon invites me, if I didn't have this game, they, would, they wouldn't invite me, you know, or, or, or US Open or, or Australian Open. I know that they know I can bring something to the tennis. I know that people, they come to see me and they say, Mansoor, I want to thank you because my son didn't like tennis. I brought him to see you and he loves tennis now. My wife didn't play like tennis. Now he loves tennis. That is the things for me is worth more than any money that you can. And when you look at today's tennis, there seem to be more and more inventive shots coming in. We're seeing a lot of underarm serves in in big matches. We're seeing more strange drop shots with lots of side spin. Do you think that actually you offer a collection of shots that players are making more use of these days? I hope so. I, I don't know. But I must say, I know that there are players, they're trying to do my stuff. I know that, for example, uh, Novak Djokovic, he came to me three years ago. We were in the locker room in, in Roland Garros. I was talking to Boris. And then uh, Novak came to me and he says, Mansur, I look at your videos and I love watching that. It's fantastic. And I hope you don't mind. I have tried to pick up some of your, uh, your tricks and I hope you don't mind. I was very surprised and happy that he told me. He has the honesty to tell me. I said, Nole, you are number one in the world. And thank you for, uh, you for asking me. It's an honor for me. If you want to, to try one of my shots, it's an honor for me. Go ahead and help yourself. And finally, Mansur. Do you think that you're now in your mid-60s? Do you think that there's a chance that you can take tennis back to Iran during your lifetime? It would be my dream, but uh, I don't think so, really. I don't think that I can do anything with tennis in Iran. Every few years there's an election in Iran and they, they look to see whether one of the reformers might come to power. Is there not a, a scenario that's plausible where you could, be, uh, you could take Djokovic back with you to Iran? You know, I went, uh, I went to play in Iran. I went with Bjorn Borg, with Vilas, with Sanchez and uh, Cedric Piolin, Henri Leconte. We went there with Penforce 2002, 2003, 2004. And in 2005, they wanted to make it bigger. They were asking me, Mansoor, we want you to help us bring Agassi, Sampras and this and that. And uh, so uh, I said, OK, I can, I can, you know, no problem. I, can, I know all the players. So but in 2005... Uh, Ahmadinejad became president and everything was stopped and since then I have not played in Iran so uh, I don't know what's happening so but uh, I hope it's going for good for to for in a good way well I hope you get back with tennis at some stage in the meantime continue enjoying it because everybody else enjoys watching you thank you Chris thank you very much the one-of-a-kind Mansour Bahrami. What a life he's had and continues to have. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, please tell your friends about it and the fact that every Wednesday on the ATP Podcast channel, we bring you an in-depth interview with a member of the tennis community, from players to coaches, support staff to administrators, and the occasional person like Mansour Bahrami who defies all categorization. 
This has been an ATP podcast special with me, Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us next weekend when we'll be in Washington ahead of the ATP 500 event in the American capital. Whatever you do between now and then, enjoy the tennis. 